I'm still waiting for you all to persuade me that, that Donald Trump is wrong. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm Yochi Driesen, the managing editor of News, and you're listening to The ER. Today I'm joined by FP contributor Rosa Brooks, senior Future of War fellow at New America and professor at Georgetown University. Also with us is David Sanger, national security correspondent for The New York Times and author of Confront and Conceal, Obama's Secret Wars and Surprising Use of American Power. Recently, in our tiny podcast studio, high above Washington's DuPont Circle, we had the following conversation. David, let me start with you. You just had the doubtlessly, wonderfully entertaining and interesting experience of spending 100 minutes talking foreign policy with Donald Trump. It made a lot of news, but what jumped out to you as the most interesting or perhaps the most surprising parts of it? Well, okay, I think what was the most interesting element of it was the following, that almost any problem in national security or foreign policy that you raise with Donald Trump gets answered with a solution that is fundamentally economic pressure merged with negotiation. So if the problem is Saudi Arabia and their absence of contributions to fighting ISIS, the solution is we will tell them that we're stopping buying their oil. If the problem is getting the Mexicans to pay for the wall, he told Bob Woodward uh, recently, the solution is that we stop all money transfers to Mexico. If the problem is uh, Japan's contributions to uh, our military bases there, and they already contribute more than any other ally uh, on Earth to the American forces there, uh, the answer is that we tell them that we will pull the forces if they don't pay for everything. So it's this maximalist economic pressure approach that doesn't take into account the possibility that we have these forces forward deployed at NATO, in Japan, in South Korea, in part for our own purposes, in part to save us money, in part as an extended deterrent. Oh, I don't know why I'm I'm going to do this, but I'm going to defend Donald Trump today. I, I'm, couldn't you say, David, that he does take that into account, but he doesn't voice that for a reason that he actually articulated in the interview, that he, he, he holds the Nixonian view that it is better for American power for America to be unpredictable. And he sure is getting a reputation abroad for being, you know, mad, bad and dangerous to know, completely crazy. Uh, and I, you know, I think that he would say, hey, look, you know, why on earth, even if I privately think, I think he wouldn't, he wouldn't say this, but, but maybe he would say, even, even if I privately think, yes, it's in our self-interest to do this, the minute, as, from a negotiating perspective, the minute I acknowledge that I think that, I lose all my ability to turn the screws and get more out of our allies. Um, so I'm going to act like I could care less and let's force them to pony up a little bit more. Quick side note, I think that's probably not the first or last time that the word Nixonian will be used in connection to Donald Trump. <laughs> you know, and I, used it, I used it in the story describing, yeah. our, uh, describing our, our interview. I think, Rosa, you're exactly right. And both the brilliance of it and the shortcoming of it is that it approaches all alliance relationships as if you're in a real estate right. deal. Right. They're all because transactional. If you're, in a real, if you're in a real estate transaction and you're doing a completely transactional relationship, it's like, I don't need this building. I don't need this piece of land. Uh, there's a really attractive building site down the block. 
right? And yeah. I can go yeah. build, I, I can go I can go build my my tower there. Now, if this had been more successful from a real real estate perspective for Donald Trump, I would I would be perhaps more inclined to adopt it as a foreign policy. But but even despite obviously lots of personal skepticism, in some ways I I actually think that this is really good for the foreign policy establishment of Trump out there saying this because Although he is very uninformed, frighteningly uninformed on lots and lots of specifics, overall, it's actually a fairly coherent worldview, a fairly coherent vision of American power and how to exercise it. And I think to the, to the extent that it then forces the rest of the, the other candidates and indeed all of us pundits to articulate something we don't usually have to articulate, which is why is he wrong? That's actually a good thing because I, I, I do think he's there. He's absolutely right, as is, as is President Obama in, in talking about this in his interview with Jeff Goldberg in The Atlantic. He's absolutely right that there are all these things that have become absolute truisms, uh, bipartisan truisms in the American foreign policy establishment. And we do need to say, wait a second, is that really true? And he's, he's forcing that conversation a little bit, which, which is not a bad thing, I think. I think it's also no, interesting. Sorry. Sorry, David. Go ahead. I was going to say it's it's not a bad thing, Rosa. The only shortcoming of it is that it speeds you immediately to the negotiating tactic before you've gone and figuring to figure out what your national interests are here or even what your more short-term tactical objectives are. So, for example, let's just take the one that got the most headlines and that I wrote the most about. He he started down the line of saying Japan needs to pay for more of its own defenses. Uh, my colleague Maggie Haberman and I kept coming back to ask the and then what question. So we begin to pull back from, uh, from Japan or we threaten to. Does that make the Japanese less confident in our nuclear umbrella? And then I asked him, are you okay with them going off and building their own nuclear weapons, which is obviously right. something a small minority, right-wing minority within Japan has talked about since the days I lived there 20 years ago. And uh, he said he had no particular problem with that. Okay, so as a negotiating viewpoint, I understand why he would go off and say that. If, on the other hand, you have stopped to think about your strategic objectives, and you say your first strategic objective is avoid more countries getting nuclear weapons. Second is avoid the precedent of countries dropping out of the nuclear nonproliferation treaty. Third objective might be create disincentives rather than incentives for the Chinese or other neighbors to build up their uh, nuclear forces. Then you have to say to yourself, in the pursuit of my negotiating advantage, Am I undercutting one of my national interests? And that conversation does not appear to have happened yet. So, David, there are two things that jumped out at me. Well, actually, three. And I think one of these is just bad luck on your part. Uh, Trump just did an interview with Gabriel Sherman of New York Magazine that he did poolside with his staff in various states of— I do all my interviews poolside. Yeah, if only. Um, with the staff in various states of monster energy drink clutching and states of undress. So I think— Phone calls, you kind of guys got the short stick. but <laughs> Clearly. Um, but there, there were two things about that I thought were really interesting. One, when he talked about NATO being obsolete, you know, that's something Bob Gates has said, that's Leon Panetta yep. has said, that Ash Carter yep. has said. So on that one, I think in particular, he was not totally out of left field. But also, just sort of a – maybe we could pull the curtain back on the journalism part of it. If I was reading the story right, you guys did the initial longer part of it. And then he called you back later to clarify a point from the first part. Do I have that right? 
Well, close. Uh, we did an initial 45-minute conversation, and then he called back in the afternoon and wanted to continue the conversation, and we did another 55 minutes <laughs> then, okay? And I think so, he likes you. Well, what can I tell you? Not enough to have me down poolside with the That's energy next. drinks and, you know, all that. So, uh, so that was the that was the way uh, it all unfolded. One was in the morning, one was in the afternoon. But on the the sort of broader point uh, that we were uh, going after about the operational objectives and so forth, this all makes sense because he has spent his life as a negotiator in real estate. He understands what his real estate objectives are. As Rosa points out, you can, we can have a debate about how successful and not successful it was, but he clearly understands the business. In the world of diplomacy, he doesn't yet understand all the rest of the pieces of the toolkit. So he's reaching for the one he knows the best, which is exact the maximum amount of economic pain. But the advantages that one gets from a, um, an alliance the ability to have your forces forward deployed, the ability to build up a relationship that you may need to call upon in a tense time, the intelligence sharing that goes on, particularly with our closest allies. Those are all things that he just hasn't had exposure to yet. And so he doesn't yet immediately run to the thought of, are there some benefits I'm getting from this alliance that are not immediately economically quantifiable? Here's a question, and this is more a question about personality than anything else, I suppose. But, you know, we know that for better or for worse, most successful presidential candidates have a steep learning curve when they actually get into office. And very often they, they find that they either no longer wish to or that they are unable to pursue the objectives and the methods that they discussed on the campaign trail. And, and sometimes this is tragic and sometimes this is a good thing. But the great machine of the U.S. executive branch and, and the U.S. legislative branch uh, ties their hands in all sorts of ways and guides and constrains them in all sorts of ways. Do, do you think, having spent a lot of time thinking about Donald Trump and listening to him, that if, if uh, through some astonishing turn of events he were actually to become president, that he, too, would find his foreign policy changing quite dramatically? Or do you think that he's the exception? And would he, would he prove stubbornly resistant to all efforts to alter this? Hard to tell. Uh, my guess is that at some point, somebody steps into the Oval Office and explains to you the downside of doing this or doing that. And you, know, this and you say, same... you're fired. Right. Well, this is the same question we had in milder form about George W. Bush, who said a lot of sort of black and white things in the 2000 campaign, and then became president and had a series of establishment advisors. And it, that all worked out great. Yeah. Oh, well, <laughs> anyway, um, no, but, you know, in time, uh, you know, President Bush used to argue, you know, used to, to sort of uh, tease the press and say, I I'm beginning to learn about nuance. That's the way he pronounced it, nuance in a good Texas twang. Um, we haven't gotten to the nuance stage yet with Donald Trump, but I think sooner or later you always do. David, I think you need to work on your Texas twang because that sounded <laughs> like Cambridge it sounded pretty. It sounded pretty East. I've got a lot of of, of, of Texas ancestors, but I, I agree it, that was an extremely poor rendition. <laughs> so to echo the shocking phrase Rosa used earlier of not to defend Donald Trump, but you know, what if we were to play devil's advocate and say that there has been this consensus for decades that alliances matter, that 
forward deployed troops matter, that that's the way of maximizing our power with minimizing our cost. And what if that hasn't worked? I mean, what if Trump is right to say NATO doesn't matter? And what if he's right to say we should go to a full transactional relationship with the Russians and with the Middle East and with the Gulfies and, and with the Mexicans? And indeed right not to tip his hand about his ultimate strategic objectives, that, that his approach to negotiations is you never start off by saying, hey, here's my ultimate objective. You start off by being very cagey about that. Yeah, no, that's that's absolutely right. And, uh, you know, as a matter of tactics, you're probably right. Our concern about Donald Trump is not that he doesn't know how to go about this tactically. Our concern about Donald Trump right now is how much does he understand the strategic interests of the United States? And you heard President Obama at that press conference after the nuclear security summit turn out that very biting line, which I'm sure I'm not quoting exactly right, but it was basically, he doesn't know very much about foreign policy. He doesn't know very much about proliferation. He doesn't know very much about the Korean peninsula. So his argument is to put in the Oval Office somebody who has not sort of thought ahead about the implications of some of these actions is dangerous. Trump would say, uh, you can have somebody who has thought a lot about the implications, but is a poor negotiator and isn't going to get you very much. And I think the, the argument that you guys are taking, even if it's just for devil's advocate purposes, is he's not all wrong. And he isn't, because the, um, the prescriptions of the problem that he is laying out is fairly common. As Yoki, as you said, it was, it was Bob Gates who said NATO has got to contribute more because if they do not... Uh, they're going to lose a generation uh, of Americans who don't remember the Cold War. Uh, it was President Obama himself who said that the Saudis were free riders. So we're in agreement on what the problem is. The difference is what's the solution that keeps an alliance together? And Trump basically says, I'm willing to put the entire alliance on the line in order to achieve my goal here of getting them to pay more. And I think the issue that we're debating here is, is that wise? So I had to go to the glasses and the notes for the phenomenal exchange, because, David, you were close, but it was even better. So this was Obama uh, speaking about Trump. The person who made the statements doesn't know much about foreign policy or nuclear policy or the Korean peninsula, pause, or the world generally, which was spectacular. And then Trump, in a very Trumpian response, said, Obama's incompetent. I know more about <laughs> nuclear than he will ever know. So it was like that, that, that's Trump possible to a in statement. a sort of loose interpretation of the word nuclear. Uh, but 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 you know again, most American presidents uh, in in recent decades have not come into office with really any foreign policy experience, and that in many ways includes Barack Obama. Uh, it certainly included George W. Bush. I think it would be fair to say of both men that their their foreign policies evolved during the their eight years in office. That Bush too. Uh, the second Bush administration was was quite different and significantly more restrained and realist than Bush one. I think you can say that the same of, uh, well, depending whether you're a critic or not, either way, you might say the same of uh, Obama's second administration. So I, I don't think that that's actually, that, that he doesn't know that much. It doesn't strike me as a particularly useful criticism because it is rare, and Hillary Clinton is a rare exception, um, to have a candidate, a political candidate for president who does know much about foreign policy or the world. Why would they? They tend to be governors. They tend to be people, you know, people coming out of uh, the state level politics or maybe Congress or the Senate for a relatively short time. So I, I, you know, I'm still waiting for you all to persuade me that, that Donald Trump is wrong. 
There it is. Ro- Rosa Brooks having <laughs> laid down the gauntlet. Okay, Twitter world, have at it. But, you know, it's interesting. I was reading that Trump's total campaign team, his total size of everyone he has working for him is about 90 people. Hillary has somewhere in the area of 765. So, you know, I guess a question, David, for you and also for Rosa, typically the presidents come in, as you say, without necessarily knowing a whole lot about foreign policy, but then they can reach out to the big, mushy middle of Democratic and pull in dozens of people, or George W. Bush pull in Dick Cheney and Steve Hadley and all these other dozens of people. Given that you've had those same people sign public letters saying, we will not work for Donald Trump, let's take this, you know, arguably, if he's elected, and I asked this if he's elective, they're all going to work for him. Can he find people? You think they'll come work for him? I anyway? do. I do. I think people like access to power. I think. I think he's unlikely to be elected. I don't. I don't wish to say, by the way, that it's a good thing that so many presidents come in inexperienced. I think it is a better thing if they do have experience. I'm glad Hillary Clinton has so much experience. But I think that, in point of fact, even many of the people were saying, you know, never Trump. Uh, if Donald Trump becomes president uh, and says, "I'd like you to be one of my cabinet secretaries." They're going to go, oh, shucks, well, uh, I guess this fellow needs my help, uh, and they're going to come in. David, do you feel the same, that, they, that people would set aside alleged principle and go work for President Trump? Well, it's going to be hard for the hundred or so people who've signed that letter, right? But even maybe some of them will do it. Yeah, I, you can imagine the way one justifies this to oneself, which is, I disagree with everything he said in the campaign, but... He's been elected. I owe it to my country. Yes, it is my, my painful duty. And not only that, but since I have this deep experience and the president clearly needs some help along those lines, I I owe it to be a, a sort of check on, on bad things happening. So, I mean, you can you can hear the justification sort of rolling through. Yeah, I know we need to wrap up kind of quickly. So a last question for both of you. And again, pulling back the media curtain. David, when you were talking to him, a lot of the policies he was describing People would have once said we're isolationist, but he bristled and you and your kindness gave him a new campaign slogan, America first. Well, it's sort of an old campaign slogan. <laughs> you may recall it was Charles Lindbergh before the war uh, making the argument why the United States should stay out. I didn't describe that history, but I did say to him that listening to the totality of his argument, which he argued was not isolationist uh, because he talks about how many friends he has abroad, how much he wants to go deal with our allies and so forth. But clearly he wants to put this on an economic basis in which we get paid for our services. And as he said, we don't feel like we're being ripped off. And I said to him, that sounds like America first. And he said, I like the sound of that and uh, sort of, you know, took off with it. I have not heard him use it a whole lot since. So we're not going to see the Make America First Again t-shirts? You you may. I think I already saw one, but I don't know whether it was an official or unofficial one. Fantastic. Listen, Rosa Brooks, thank you. David Sanger, thank you. Great to For be here. For those of you out Great there, to be here. please go to Twitter and explain to Rosa Brooks why she is wrong about I Donald Trump. I know I'm wrong, God. Okay, all right. Don't rub it in. And, and Rosa, I'm looking forward to that moment where we do this podcast from... The poolside, the poolside studio. Yes, yeah. that's, that's next. Think, David Rothkopf, we a, hope you are listening. I think that would be a. Um, I think that would be a really good step up. Out I, here. I think that that would enhance the quality of my thinking and analysis substantially. And, yeah. This episode, obviously sponsored by Mar-a-Lago and the Monster Energy Drink, Drink Company. Monster, send us your stuff. Otherwise, thanks for listening to this episode of the ER. I'm Yolchi Driesen. Have a good rest of your week. You've been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm Yolchi Driesen, filling in this week for David Rothkopf. The program is produced by Maria Ori and Ann Kingston. 
For more information about FP and to subscribe, please visit foreignpolicy.com. And thank you very much for joining us.